0: Hey everyone, thank you as always for joining me for episode 53 of the Mark Guy Show. So I had another topic planned. I'm going to talk about it later. I'm going to talk about really how the Donald Trump election, regardless of how you feel about Donald Trump, I think one positive that it's having is that it's forcing the left to really start to reevaluate positions that they held in the past. So I'm going to talk about their position on states' rights. I've talked about uh, the Cal exit, California potentially seceding from the United States and how that's gained support from a lot of progressives and and far-left type of people because they see now Donald Trump is president. And how could we possibly be governed by this man? That's what they're saying. And that's what a lot of libertarians or conservatives or, you know, really... A lot of groups have said about presidents in the past and it's always been denounced as being extremist or as being racist somehow you know wanting to to possibly remove yourself from the jurisdiction of the U.S. government in a state seceding Uh, that's just one example though Um, I'm also going to talk about the debt ceiling here how the Democrats have said now that they're going to use the debt ceiling uh, as a as a weapon as a tool just like the Republicans did while Obama was president. So they're doing a lot of the same things. Obviously both sides are hypocrites and I've talked a lot about the Republicans being hypocrites too and I'm not I'm not trying to make this a and I support the Republicans and I oppose the Democrats type of thing because that is very very far from the truth. The Republicans really deserve just as much culpability for for a lot of the negative things that have happened. But I think right now the left is my focus. The left is a lot of people's focus because that's that's the group that's changing more right now, I think, and the group that, that is having to do more self-evaluation than the right. The right is evolving, too. You're, you're seeing this, this populist wing really led by Trump and Trump-type of policies. You're seeing the right change, and I don't want to ignore that, but I think the left is more interesting to talk about right now. So I'm going to get to that later, but I wanted first to talk about this. This is new news today. The leaker reality winner that's her actual name and she's 25 years old so young person they've already found her social media things that she's posted it looks like she was a a big bernie supporter hated trump posted some really questionable things on social media but i see the right now saying lock her up lock her up she needs to be put in jail when these same people were championing, championing WikiLeaks just months ago or you know even even weeks ago and now all of a sudden somebody releases something that maybe goes against Donald Trump and I'm going to go into it in detail because I read the actual leak it's only 5 pages I'm going to post it as a link and you should go and read it yourself rather than seeing what's filtered down to you through the press there's not a lot there to be honest so that so people saying that this girl should be locked up and throw away the key, and I've seen a lot of extreme types of things like that, people are being so inconsistent on these things. And if you think that that what Edward Snowden did was great, and a lot of people do, um, myself included, you also have to think that that what Reality Winner did here was good as well. Even if the information is different, even if the information isn't valuable, um, you've got to be consistent on this. Because our government does a lot of things that's going to be damaging to either side, depending on which side's in power. A lot of the same people stay in D.C. That's this whole idea of the of the deep state working. And what was pretty recently still a conspiracy theory, the deep state, I think a lot of people are starting to realize is pretty true, that you have most of the same people staying in positions of power in Washington, D.C. And some of the faces change, but most of them do not. And those are the real people that are that are really running things behind the scenes. It's not a conspiracy theory. If, if you look at who's who's in D.C., most of those people are not elected, and most of those people are working their entire careers there, maybe changing positions within the D.C. establishment, but they are staying in D.C. Uh, so I wanted to talk about that a little bit and what the, what the leak actually said, what the leak document said. And a lot of the never-Trumpers are saying, oh, my God, this is more evidence that Russia tried to interfere in our elections that, that Russia actually did interfere in our elections and there's not any new evidence in this piece that suggests that. So if you read through it I'm I'm not going to read much specifically but there's a lot of likely and possibly used throughout this. So basically it's talking about the beginning um, Russian General Staff Main Intelligence Directorate Actors executed cyber espionage operations against a named U.S. company in August 2016, evidently to obtain information on elections-related software and hardware solutions, according to information that became available in April 2017. So they used data obtained from that operation to create a new email account and launch a voter registration-themed spear phishing campaign targeting U.S. local government organizations. So you can read that first paragraph, that's where that information is contained, and be like, oh my gosh, this this could be something serious here. But if you go on further, like I said, this is only five pages, so it's easy for anybody to go and read it themselves and, and see what's there. And I guess you're probably going to believe what you want to believe. But um, something important from the Intercept story that came along with this leak While the document provides a rare window into the NSA's understanding of the mechanics of Russian hacking, it does not show the underlying raw intelligence on which the analysis is based. A U.S. intelligence officer who declined to be identified cautioned against drawing too big a conclusion from the document because a single analysis is not necessarily definitive. And I think that's important to remember. Another um, good takeaway from this, there's nothing in the NSA report indicating the actual voting machines or vote tabulations were compromised. So all that there was was that this, this Russian company came in and compromised this U.S. company, a Florida company, and sent out malware links. And there's a lot in there saying that this is likely the motivation behind that or probably the motivation behind that. Uh, but it also doesn't go into how we've heard before that it's quite likely that whoever was doing these things was masking basically their location through Russia. So, was it actually Russia or was it somebody trying to look like they were Russia? Um, and you would think Russia would be doing or would have done a better job trying to prevent itself from being named as the, the party in these leaks. So, there's not much here. People are making this into a big story, like this is going to fundamentally change the Trump presidency. Um, I think the only way it really will change anything is how they end up treating this reality winner, a uh, girl who who leaked the documents to the Intercept. and WikiLeaks came out, and they have said that they are issuing a $10,000 reward for information leading to the public exposure and termination of the Intercept reporter, who ended up leaking, basically going to the U.S. government, had a contact in the U.S. government, and released her name to the U.S. government and now she is arrested and she could be facing jail time here. Uh, Here's what they posted. On or about May 24, 2017, a reporter for the news outlet, the reporter, contacted another U.S. government agency affiliate with whom he has a prior relationship. This individual works for a contractor for the U.S. government. The reporter contacted the contractor via text message and asked him to review certain documents. The reporter told the contractor that the reporter had received the documents through the mail and they were postmarked Augusta, Georgia. Winner resides in Augusta, Georgia. The reporter believed that the documents were sent to him from someone working at the location where Winner works. The reporter took pictures of the documents and sent them to the contractor. The reporter asked the contractor to determine the veracity of the documents. The contractor informed the reporter that he thought the documents were fake. Nonetheless, the contractor contacted the U.S. government agency on or about June 1, 2017 to inform the U.S. government agency of his interaction with the reporter. Also on June 1st, 2017, the reporter texted the contractor and said that a US government agency official had verified that the document was real. When questioned about what intelligence report number was associated with the images on his phone, the contractor supplied the reporting number associated with the intelligence reporting in issue or at issue. So, it's going to be interesting to see what ends up happening to this intercept reporter if his or her, well, his it said in that in that that it was a it was a he that uh, if and when his identity is released, what's The Intercept going to do? What's WikiLeaks going to try to do? And The Intercept, its one of its main editors is is Glenn Greenwald. He's the, he's the biggest character there. I've talked about him on the show before where we don't agree on much economically, he and I, but I think I do respect him. He's consistent. He, he's been consistent regardless of whether Democrats or Republicans are in power. He's not a partisan hack. Uh, and I think he's a, he's a name that's widely respected by most people, really regardless of where you fit on the political spectrum. I think you've got to respect what he's doing. So that somebody with the Intercept name behind them is doing these types of things and releasing the name of a leaker to the U.S. government, and now that person is going to prison, or maybe going to prison, uh, it's just going to be interesting to see how they react to this, how the Intercept reacts to this. So, like I said, I didn't want this to be the main focus of my entire show, but I wanted to talk about it because I'm seeing a lot of, you know, a lot of hysteria about this leak and how it's going to change the Trump presidency and how this is a huge new piece of information. And I just don't see it. And you can go there and read it for yourself. I didn't want to read any more than than I did, but there's a lot of likelies and probables and possibles peppered throughout there, and it doesn't give you any really of the source material that's used to to reach those conclusions. So. There's just not much there, in my opinion. So I wanted to return to what my original major topic was going to be for this show and talking about how one of the good things to come out of the Trump presidency, really regardless of how you feel about him, and I'm very critical of most of the things that he's done thus far, but it's forcing the left to really reconsider some of the the fundamental assumptions that they've had about the other side. Because they're starting to use a lot of the same tactics or hold a lot of the same views because all of a sudden now they have somebody that they can't stand in power. And a lot of people couldn't stand Obama being in power or couldn't stand George Bush being in power or couldn't stand Bill Clinton being in power. And they held certain views such as secession, you know, such as a state, a state should have the ability to leave the United States if it so chooses, if its people choose. And those were just completely completely cast away as being extremist opinions as being extremist views and not having any place in this country but all of a sudden you have somebody like donald trump elected a, a real wrench thrown into the whole system and these people are starting to reconsider all those assumptions and i'm not i don't think you're going to see them saying we were wrong about these things or we're sorry for calling you racist for holding these views in the past or we're sorry for calling you extremists for holding these views in the past uh but they're showing it with their actions more so than apologizing or anything like that or really admitting that they were wrong. First, the Democrats came out today. I want to get to this first. This isn't one of my major points here, but they had been so critical of the Republicans for refusing to increase the debt ceiling, using the debt ceiling as leverage in negotiations to to pass a budget, to, to get some concessions from the other side. Nancy Pelosi came out today and said, quote, I don't have any intention of lifting the debt ceiling to enable the Republicans to give another tax break to the wealthy in our country to further exacerbate the challenge that is created when they have their trickle-down economics. The president keeps saying the tax bill is moving through Congress. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So you understand the frustration. It doesn't exist. There's no tax bill moving through Congress, end quote. So right there, Sean Pelosi, leadership of the party, one of the leaders of the party is saying that we we will use the debt ceiling as a weapon or i intend to try to use the debt ceiling as a weapon and these are the same people that were saying how dare you hold the hold the us government hostage for these short-term gains and you know this is so short-sighted and now you're seeing the exact same thing happen when they're on the other side so very hypocritical but you don't see any of them coming out and saying that You know, we are being hypocritical, and maybe we shouldn't have been castigating all the Republicans as being extremists just a few short years ago. Um, But my more major points, so if you look at the U.S. leaving the Paris Accord, and I didn't do an episode about this, but I can probably sum up my opinion quickly, and it's an opinion held elsewhere out there, but this did not do anything. This, This agreement did not do anything. It did not bind any countries. You set your own standards and you could choose to live up to those standards or you could choose not to. There were no teeth behind any parts of this agreement. All it was was you, you could shame other countries in public. That was really the only feedback mechanism in the Paris Accord. So the U.S. leaving this doesn't change anything. The U.S. could have just said, well, you know, we're not setting any standards and we'll stay in it like North Korea is in it. But North Korea is not doing anything to, to reduce their emissions. They've obviously got far bigger things to worry about, and they don't, they, you know, they don't have enough in terms of technology or anything to really be creating much in terms of emissions anyways. They have people starving every day. Uh, but the U.S. could have done that, or it could leave. And it decided to leave, but you look at the very same people who are freaking out like the U.S. is sacrificing the health of the planet these are the same people that were saying just a couple years ago, and I'm going to post a couple articles. There's a good one from Politico that I read from back then that said that this agreement was useless and it was just for optics. And that's really what it was. It was to say you could go back to your people and you could say, look, we're trying to do the trying to do this global thing on climate change and l- look at all the great progress that we're making, but without actually having to make any of those tough decisions, actually having to make the trade-offs associated with Doing whatever they wanted to do, um, you know, reducing emissions or uh, you know using tax dollars to fund clean energy or whatever it may be, without without actually having to make those tough decisions. They wanted to go back to their people and say, "Look, I'm I'm doing something to solve this problem." So they wanted to have their cake and eat it too, and they were heavily criticized for it at the time. People criticized Obama, people criticized the governments of the world because they thought this didn't do anything. You know, it's not, not just that this this didn't do enough, but that this didn't do anything. But those same people now are acting like it's because it's Trump and they hate Trump so much that they're willing to freak out over Trump doing it. But if, you know, if if another president had done it, you would not have seen this same reaction because they could have gone back easily and looked at, what, a year and a half or two years ago or whatever it was when the U.S. originally agreed to enter the Paris Accord. You can go back and read the articles pretty easily. The Internet's a great thing. You can go back and, and look at what opinion was at the time. And that was my first thought when I heard that, the, that uh, Trump was considering leaving the Paris Accord was, well, I remember reading those articles when we first entered it saying, you know, being very critical of the Paris Accord. So I went back and just found those articles again, and things hadn't changed, but a lot of those same people Now it shifted their tune because it's it's Trump making this decision. But anyways, back to my main point here, is you're seeing once that happened and once people realize there's nothing they can do about having this rogue person in charge of the White House, which is how they see Donald Trump, you're seeing them say, well, now it's up to state and local governments and private businesses to... uh, to fix the environment or to, to do what needs to be done to preserve the environment. There's a great meme out there. Um, it says, Trump pulls out of Paris steel. It's just, I, I never reference memes on this show, but I thought this was a good one because it perfectly illustrated the point I wanted to make in this uh, in this podcast. Then liberals say, we can't rely on federal government. We need private industry and individuals to make change. And then there's a picture of Jack Nicholson with a huge smile on his face, and it says, me, labeled me. And this is one of those times where I wish I had a uh, I had a live stream going and I could put that up on the screen. But I'll link to it if you want to see it. It'll be on the, uh, on the website post for this podcast episode. But that's really important to consider that what – basically what private businesses have done has done a lot more to quote unquote save the environment than governments have been able to do. The EPA has not been effective. And what you're seeing is business being able to make these these clean energy products cheaper and cheaper and better and better. And at one point, you know, you couldn't even imagine switching without prohibitive costs, you know, switching to using solar panels or or you know whatever other clean energy source you can think of, depending on what your what your use was, you couldn't think of doing that without forking over many many multiples of what you were paying previously. But now it's come down to the point where people can do it, and normal people can do it. It's not just the very rich that can afford to do it. You, know, you can see middle class people using solar panels. Uh, and this has been done primarily by private business. There have been huge subsidies, certainly. Um, but I think the subsidies ultimately are unnecessary. What it's done is it's, it's kept some of these weaker companies alive that really shouldn't be receiving financing. And you would hope that the the ones that actually are able to cash flow, those ones that are able to turn a profit, actually should be receiving the bulk of the investing from the public. Um, but. What subsidies do is keep those marginal companies alive, and those marginal companies still do attract financing because if the subsidies continue, those companies can stay alive and their valuations can continue to go up. Um, but the market has done a far better job than governments have done. And I think people are starting to realize this, but they, they try to hold, and Contra Krugman did a really good job, that, uh, that podcast, I'll put a link to that, they dissected Paul Krugman's column from this week, and he's saying on one hand that basically what Trump's doing is going to destroy the planet. But at the same time, he's trying to say that, well, switching could be very cheap or you know, it could actually save us money in the long run, switching to renewable energies. Well, you can't have one or the other because if uh, if it's so cheap that we're going to be able to do it, without it costing much money or with with it costing nothing then you don't need government to get involved. You don't need these global agreements. You don't need the US being beholden to other countries as to how we're going to set our environmental policy or as to how we're going to set our tax policy or whatever may happen as a result of m- more stringent global agreements on climate change. If it's cheap or free or going to save us money, people are going to do it themselves. You're not going to need these global agreements to force the u.s to do this so you can't hold it both ways and the the Contra krugman guys tom woods and bob murphy they did a fantastic job of unpacking this so i want to give them credit for for really making that solid point but i think it's an important one one thing though that i don't see being eradicated whatsoever is this belief this pervasive belief among so many people a lot of the blue check marks on twitter uh, especially are guilty of this but they think that basically profit-making businesses are greedy and bad and are out to rip you off. And that the government does exactly what it promises to do. And whatever the intentions of a given program are, that's what it's going to achieve. And I see this assumption so much. So Trump today came out, uh, came out with a plan to privatize the FAA, air traffic control. And I, I love this move. I think this is long overdue. And I think it will improve efficiency, both in terms of, of costs and operations. The FAA is a terribly run organization, has been a terribly run organization. So I'm going to post, this is from the Washington Post. Um, obviously, they're not the ones that, that did this analysis, but I'm going to read some some quotes from this. This is from May 2015. Scathing report, FAA isn't delivering what was promised in $40 billion project. A day after the Federal Aviation Administration celebrated the latest success in its $40 billion modernization of the air traffic control system, the agency was hit Friday by the most scathing criticism to date for the pace of its efforts. The FAA has frustrated Congress and been subject to frequent critical reports as it struggles to roll out the massive and complex system called NextGen, but the thorough condemnation in a study released Friday by the National Academies was unprecedented. Mincing no words, the panel of 10 academic experts brought together by the Academy's National Research Council said the FAA was not delivering the system that, that had been promised and should, quote, reset expectations, end quote, about what it is delivering to the public and the airlines that use the system. This, uh, I'm skipping a little bit here. The 77-page report from the NRC says, The original vision for NextGen is not what is being implemented today. The shift in focus has not been clear to all stakeholders. Airlines are not motivated to spend money on equipment and training for next-gen. Not all parts of the original vision will be achieved in the foreseeable future. Next-gen is currently executed, is not broadly transformational, and next-gen has been a misnomer. So Congress had commissioned this report. Uh, They were already talking about this in 2015, possibly privatizing the FAA. And I have to think this was one of the nails in the coffin for the FAA. So this huge investment, this $40 billion project, And, you know, they're they're out there saying we're achieving what we were supposed to achieve. This is great. And then this report comes in and says, basically, you've changed the scope of the project. You're not doing what you promised. And this money essentially has been a waste. But the FAA has been criticized heavily for, you know, operating. I don't want to say like it's the Stone Age, but, you know, operating decades behind Modern technology. Um, a lot of these have been out there for a while, but all of a sudden, people think that this is great because the government, the government apparently, people think that it, it is this unbiased organization and that it can run things more efficiently than private businesses, and that's been proven wrong time and time again. When the government takes control of portions of the economy, outcomes are worse, prices are higher quality stagnates or gets worse, you know, all of those general things that we've talked about a ton on this podcast, but I saw so many people coming out and saying, well, one of them was, I can't wait for the FAA to, uh, to cut the salaries of its workers like pilots to increase share value, uh, which is another one of the things I think the left is especially guilty of this. If you try to ask them, how are wages determined in a market? None of them would be able to tell you how it's done. They think that companies just conjure up wages and that's how it's determined. Companies just choose, oh, I'm going to pay my people this amount and that's what people are paid. But it's dictated by your competitors. It's dictated by the productivity of labor. And you can't just pay whatever you want for labor. You've got to pay both below the marginal productivity of that worker or it's not worth it for you to hire that worker and you have to pay, you know, at or above what your competitors are paying. And you can include fringe benefits and all that in there with compensation. Uh, but if, if you ask these people, how are wages determined, you're not going to get that answer. And it's simple, but for whatever reason, I guess our, our public education system has failed a lot of these people, and they, and they think that the only way to sort of raise wages is through unions and through collective efforts and through government intervention and it just could not be any more false but this is something I don't know if you can eradicate I don't know if you can eradicate these assumptions and you you just see it time and time again whether you're talking to people whether you're online you see it a lot in some of these Twitter threads where somebody posts something like oh Trump's gonna privatize this and you see people basically expecting that Now, planes are going to be falling out of the sky, and that quality is going to erode significantly when that has not happened over time. And you look at deregulation of the airline industry itself, when deregulation happened, prices came down, quality went up. And, you know, part of that is over time, things get generally, you know, quality generally goes up. But there was a stark reversal in, you know, air. Airline travel used to be just for the rich, and it was so expensive that most regular people couldn't do it. And in a and in a pretty short amount of time, post deregulation, now uh, common people were able to fly because prices came down. You were able to compete on more things than uh, you know. You were able to start competing on price, whereas before quality was really the only way that you could compete. Because I don't want to say you know as a it was a kind of price fixing going on in the airline industry in the heavily regulated days but these people just need to go back and look at the airline industry itself and what happened with deregulation and i think it's impossible to say that that things got worse and i think if you look at the if you look at the data what actually happened things certainly got better so even just confining ourselves to the airline industry you see this happening and i'm sure a lot of people were saying the exact same things back when deregulation efforts were happening in that industry but it's it's misguided based on based on false assumptions and misinformation that i think is a function of you could say probably the media too but i think of the the public school system and i've had this conversation with a lot of people where you do have to unlearn a lot of of what you learn a lot of just the the implicit bias that is in the public school system it's very difficult to to get away from that. And you still find yourself reverting to the assumptions that you received from, you know, whether it's biased textbooks or or biased teachers, usually a combination of both things. But the assumption is that government was the white knight that came in and saved capitalism from itself and that uh, what caused the Great Depression was capitalism run amok, the robber barons were evil, and they, all they did was rip people off. And all of these assumptions are completely false. And if you, you know, if you do an honest research and even historians aren't really holding those opinions anymore, but they still happen in our classrooms. And I still remember being told those things. I still remember accepting them because, you know, a lot of people that I saw as being smart around me, a lot of people that I respected said that. And so I just parroted what I heard, you know, without seeing really the the source material or doing any deep research myself, but when you actually go back and test those assumptions, they turn out to be false, but I think most people don't end up going back and testing their assumptions, they are oftentimes in a bubble where they're only talking to people who generally think like them, and it makes it very difficult, or I guess there's no reason for you to test those assumptions, because you probably haven't heard any different or when you do hear different you think well that person just must be an extremist or that person just must be an idiot because I've heard from everybody around me that this is how it went down so that must be how it went down but that would be what I really hope somehow the left could figure out over time is that the intentions of government programs are do not equal their results and we need to judge them on their results not on the intentions of those results and that profit making businesses are not evil or greedy certainly they're greedy like the rest of us are greedy but they depend on assuming that they're not you know relying on on government subsidies or anything like that or government contracts they depend on voluntary transactions and that's not just for selling their products, but also voluntary transactions in terms of people being willing to work at the wage that they're offering. If their wages are too low, they're not going to be able to hire people. And much the same, if their prices are too high, nobody's going to be willing to buy their products. So they have to find that sweet spot. And the profit incentive has done far more good than any sort of equalizing efforts or any efforts by governments. If you look at and I've talked about this a lot, so I'm not going to go deeply into it, but you can reference a couple of my other episodes. I talked about this is the best time to be alive in human history. All those things that I referenced were not the the product of governments. They were the product of people looking to make a profit and trying to develop something that that people would want to buy. And when people buy something, they're acknowledging that this thing improves my life, this thing is worth more to me than the money I'm spending on it. And that has done far more good than whatever governments have been able to do. So I think I'll end it there. Um, I don't want to go too much beyond a half hour, but thank you so much for tuning in again. I'm sure there'll be plenty more news coming out this week, and I'll, I'll try to delve more into the the current events. I've been out of it a bit, out of doing the whole current event thing, because it just gets a little bit tiring, to be honest. The, the constant Trump news every day, and I don't want to talk too much about trump because everybody's got an opinion and i feel like it's just another voice in the wind at that point you know me chiming in myself but uh, i thought it was important to talk about that nsa leak today and to at least talk a little bit about privatizing the faa so thank you for listening have a fantastic rest of your week